Well, hey, Soma Midtown, this is Brandon Shields, and I want to welcome you to the teaching portion of our Sunday gathering. Today, I'm excited to start a new series with you. We're calling Come Holy Spirit. And in the early years of our church, when we were just a young church plant, I taught through 1 Corinthians and specifically on the Holy Spirit in chapters 14 through 16. And in recent years, I've felt a prompting again to dive back into and teach more in depth on the person and the work and the ministry and the practice of the Holy Spirit, who New Testament scholar Gordon Fee calls God's empowering presence. Our teaching team actually planned this series back in the fall, pre-COVID, to coincide with the church calendar, which is Eastertide right now, uh, the 50 days after Easter, leading up to the time of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And as we dive into this new series on the Holy Spirit, I realize that for many of you, there may be a lot of baggage. Um, we'll call this Holy Spirit baggage or some wounding when it comes to the person of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I know for me, I didn't grow up in church. And when I became a Christian, it was in a church that essentially believed and confessed the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but believed that the Holy Spirit's work was primarily confined to the past and kind of to the pages of Scripture and were very skeptical about what they would call kind of charismatic extremism. And so there was always just this kind of, uh, you know, be careful, don't go too far, don't take it too far with the Holy Spirit. And really there ended up, in my experience at least, being a practical indifference toward the very present ministry of the Holy Spirit to do really anything other than help us understand or to illuminate biblical truth. Maybe some of you had that experience growing up in uh, church. On the other hand, I know there are some people who come from traditions where, let's be honest, things got really weird with the Spirit. The Spirit, we know, is a person. Um, we'll talk more about that next week, God's personal presence to us. But often, He's treated like, I mean, the only analogy I can think of is like the force in the, Holy, in the, uh, in the Star Wars trilogy. He's kind of this diffused presence. It's everywhere, um, and like certain people are kind of like Jedi masters that have a real heightened sensitivity to the Spirit. They're able to heal people and speak in tongues and prophesy powerfully and cast out demons. And maybe what your experience has been has been more seeing the abuse of the Spirit. You've seen people get manipulated or you've seen false prophets rise up and say things that ended up not being true. And maybe you have experienced the Spirit in such a way that it's left you with a sense of disappointment or maybe even a disillusionment, and you're jaded and cynical towards signs and wonders and things of that nature. And, and what you've seen is people just really get fixated on pursuing the power of the Holy Spirit, but not a relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. If either one of those fit you or some spectrum in between, I, I want to encourage you. Um, bad things can happen in the church when it comes to doctrine and teaching and experience. But here's the thing. We don't stop teaching the Bible or listening to sermons because there's bad teaching. We don't stop praying because we've had a bad experience in prayer. We don't do that really in any area of life, to be honest, even outside the church. We don't stop eating because we get food poisoning in a particular restaurant. And we don't stop, I would argue, pursuing the Spirit because people have abused His gifts and presence. What we need to do is to learn to relate properly to the Holy Spirit. We need to trust Him that we are going to get it wrong. Nobody's going to get it exactly right when it comes to how we pursue the Holy Spirit, but we want to trust Him to make perfect what we tend to practice imperfectly. There's no mastery of the Spirit. The Spirit is wild. The Spirit is 
is mysterious, and we want to be open to the ways that the Spirit wants to speak to us. Uh, Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God, and in there, I thought he used a really great analogy that I just wanted to draw on as we get started, that he said, if you were stranded on an island, and you stripped away all of your modern church experiences, so let's step back from the weirdness or maybe the indifference that you've experienced, and all you had to read was the Bible, what would you expect in terms of the Holy Spirit? What would you read? What would you see about the Holy Spirit in the Bible? What he argues is that you would expect the Holy Spirit to be as essential to your present spiritual life. If you just read the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you would expect the Spirit to be as essential for your life with God in the world as air or food or water. And that's what I want us to kind of lean into as we think about the Holy Spirit. So here's our plan for the next couple of months as we teach on the person and the work of the Spirit. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, who He is, and what He does as God's empowering presence. We're going to talk about the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian community, His gifts, what it means to walk by the Spirit, worship in the Spirit, to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit as disciples. And today I want to start our time just by looking at Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, and how Jesus brings what we might call the, the, the age of the Spirit. What does it look like to live in the age of the Spirit? And here's kind of the big idea from beginning to end in the Bible. So if you're a Bible-loving person, you're like, show me where this, at's in the, show me where this is at in the Bible. Um, from beginning to end, the Bible shows us how critical the Holy Spirit is to the life and joy and power and wholeness of the community of Jesus. In other words, where there's no spirit, there's no life. But where there is life, there is the spirit. And so um, oftentimes when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we start in the wrong zip code. We look to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and we say, well, the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. And that's partially true, but actually not completely true. When you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we see the spirit of life at work in the world. Right from the beginning opening chapter, the very first page in your Bible, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So what we see in the opening chapter of Genesis, the very first word, uh, one of the very first words there, is the Spirit. It's this beautiful Hebrew word, ruach. And we see this word ruach show up 377 times in the Old Testament, and 94 of those are references to the Spirit of God. This Hebrew word, ruach, can mean spirit or breath or wind. The idea here is, is the powerful wind of God's presence, breathing and blowing on what we might call the wilderness of, at this time, an uninhabitable wilderness. The word here for wilderness is, is it kind of rhymes in the Hebrew, tohu va bohu. It literally means formless and empty or a trackless waste. What we see here is the Spirit of God is the Spirit of life. He is creating the conditions for life and beauty and order and flourishing. And what happens in the rest of Genesis chapter 1 is we see the world go from formless and empty to 
fully formed and full, right? So fullness and, and form begin to take shape, and this is God's design for flourishing. The Spirit is creating these conditions for the presence of God to dwell with his first people, Adam and Eve, and his creation. Another interesting kind of metaphor that's used here in Genesis chapter 1 is the Spirit is, is hovering or brooding over creation. And the metaphor here is intended to point us to the imagery of a mother bird or an eagle that is flapping its wings and, and again, bringing form and fullness to the world, hovering over creation, bringing life, giving birth to order and beauty and wholeness. And that's why a lot of ancient art, if you look back over the ages, medieval art and others portray the spirit as an eagle or as a dove hovering over her chicks. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 2, you see not only does the spirit bring life and creation, but also is the very life of the creation of human beings. Genesis 2.7 says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed, there's that word ruach again, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So we see the spirit literally creating a living soul, a living nephesh from the dust of the earth. And we see this beautiful hybrid or combination of dust and spirit, earthiness and heavenliness, physicality and spirituality. We are a unified whole because the breath of God has been blown into our bodies and made us living creatures. So what we learn in the early chapters of Genesis is that wherever we experience life, we know that the Spirit is present, and He has been active from the very beginning. If you go on through the rest of the story of the Old Testament, if you remember in the Exodus series, we looked at how God's presence dwelt among His people in the tabernacle, um, which many people believe was very much about the Holy Spirit dwelling in that tabernacle and later filling Solomon's temple, if you want to read in 1 Kings chapter Eight. And we see the Spirit during this time coming on people, but coming on people temporarily for specific tasks, usually around leadership, directing them and giving them special wisdom and power and knowledge. So you see the Spirit come on prophets. You see the Spirit fall on priests and judges and kings. What we also know here is that um, Israel failed in her task to live in the presence of God, to dwell with God. Israel's sin and idolatry and injustice caused them to forfeit the presence of God, and they're sent into exile, and they essentially lose the corporate presence of God dwelling. And that's why people are lamenting, and they're falling down, and they're weeping. When you read Ezra, Nehemiah, and the kind of post-exilic prophets, because not just because they've lost this geographic place or this, this building, it's because they've lost and forfeited the very presence of of God. Now, the good news is that prophecies begin to emerge about a time when the Spirit will once again blow through creation. Once again, this, the renewing presence of the Spirit will breathe fresh life into His people and into the world. There's a, a coming time, the prophets say, when the Spirit will be poured out again on God's people and on the world. In Joel chapter 2 Prophet Joel says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Ezekiel 36, likewise, the prophet Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. So we see here prophecies or predictions, forecasts about a coming day when the spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh, on all people. It will be poured out not just temporarily as a visitation of the Spirit, but permanently as a habitation of the Spirit, an indwelling of the Spirit on all people. And it will cross over even racial and social and gender divides. There will be an increase in prophecy, and the Spirit will come and take out our heart of sin and put in a heart that's guided by the Holy Spirit, that has the mind of God, the heart of God, the vision of God, and the wisdom of God to help us live our lives. All of this will be done, the prophets say, and brought about by a man that they call the Messiah, the anointed Messiah, the spirit-anointed one. In the Hebrew, that word is Meshiach, or in the Greek, it's Christos. Both mean the anointed one. So Jesus is, let's just be clear, Jesus' last name is not Christ. (laughs) Christ, Christos, is a title. It means the anointed one. And there's this promise of a servant who will come in the spirit of the, the, the Davidic king, in um, the spirit of the prophets, who will be a fulfillment of the priesthood and the judges and those on whom the spirit came, but the spirit will come in this one and bring about renewal. Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet Isaiah says, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So this suffering servant will come in the line of Jesse. He will be an ancestor of Jesse, and the spirit of God's going to rest on him, and he's going to be full of wisdom and knowledge and bring about the kingdom of God. Isaiah 42 goes on to elaborate. He says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So this servant is not only going to be anointed, he's going to be anointed for the task of bringing justice, of taking everything that's broken by sin and shattered. He's going to take all oppression and he's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things right. He will be a man about justice. If you fast forward to the end of the New Testament, there's this promise in Malachi chapter 4 when the people are gathered back together after the exile. They're brought back into the promised land. And God says, one day I'm going to fulfill my promises to bring the Spirit, to breathe out my life-giving Spirit again, and I will send the prophet Elijah. These are the last words in Malachi chapter 4. To turn the hearts of fathers toward their children and children toward their fathers. Now what's so interesting there at the end of Malachi is Malachi closes. And in our Bibles, we like turn the page, and it's Matthew chapter 1. But that intertestamental period was 400 years of silence. I don't know if you can kind of put yourself there emotionally. Imagine receiving those promises and then waiting and waiting and waiting. Your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, nobody sees those promises fulfilled. And I wonder if they begin to question God. Is God going to fulfill his promises? Is the Spirit going to come and take us out of this injustice and idolatry and bring the world that he's promised? And that's where we pick it up in the New Testament with the Spirit in the life of Jesus. 
Jesus came to fulfill these promises, and he came in the power of the Spirit to be the servant. And again, what's interesting is all of the supernatural, Spirit-prompted things that are happening leading up to the days of Jesus' death. It's not just when Jesus shows up or at Pentecost at the birth of the church, but all of the events leading up and surrounding the life of Jesus are just brimming with the life of the Spirit. I mean, I think about just the events leading up to Jesus' birth. We see that John himself will prepare the way of Jesus. He's filled with the Spirit in Elizabeth's womb. He's leaping with the power and the presence of the Spirit. The birth of Jesus is just surrounded with spiritual activity, a heightened sense of spiritual activity. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel shows up and says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That language of overshadowing is that same imagery. This is Genesis chapter 1 all over again. The Holy Spirit will be brooding over you like a mother eagle over her chicks, and this child to be born will be a child of the Spirit. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 goes on to say, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child, and here's the key, from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' very being is attributed to the creative work of the Spirit. The Spirit is taking what's human and he's merging it with the divine, right? Imagine trying to explain this to your friends on Instagram or social media. I'm pregnant. I mean, I've been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is superintending, is filling even Mary's womb, bringing about the, the seed of Adam and the seed of God, bringing them together in the life of Jesus. And then in Luke chapter 2, we see um, right around the time that Jesus is born, a man named Simeon is filled with the Spirit. And he, the Spirit brings him into the temple, and he begins to prophesy over Jesus. God gives him a revelation about Jesus, and he begins to speak words of promise and life into Jesus's family. This continues throughout Jesus's life, the baptism of Jesus. I think about Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, when all people were baptized. This is the ministry of John the Baptist here. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well Pleased. Again, here we see this reenactment of Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, pronouncing the divine benediction over Jesus. You are my son, giving him a sense of identity and imparting authority. You're the one in whom I'm well pleased and through whom I'm going to bring about my kingdom. And now what's really, really important, don't miss this here in the baptism of Jesus John chapter 1, John, who was a witness to this baptism, says this, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And here's the key, it remained on Jesus. The Spirit came in brief, episodic, temporary fillings in the Old Testament, but now the Spirit comes and remains, abides, makes its home, makes his home in Jesus himself. We shift from visitation to habitation of the Holy Spirit. From there, then the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
Jesus here is acting as a second Adam, a second Israel, who is reenacting and experiencing the temptation of Adam and Israel, but who obeys where they disobeyed and who restores what they ruined, who takes what's been failed and fulfills all righteousness. And the real question here is Jesus is in the wilderness is, will Jesus use his power, his authority for his own ends, or will he depend on the Spirit? And the answer is Jesus depends on the Spirit. Fast forward then to uh, him leaving the wilderness. We see he's brought, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. So the Spirit leads him out into wilderness and disorientation, and the Spirit leads him back into his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, all this culminates in the temple in Nazareth. It says this, as Luke records this, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus here is quoting a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61, a text that is describing the mission of the servant Messiah, the anointed one, as he publicly announces the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And this is the launch of his ministry of healing and liberation. We see Jesus from here begin to preach about the kingdom of God, to offer forgiveness of sins, to heal people, to deliver them from demonic powers. We see social transformation begin to to break out from the ministry of Jesus. Reconciliation, these are all signs of the new kingdom and signs that the age of the spirit that was promised in the Old Testament that is now empowering Jesus is here. Let me say something at this point in our teaching that might sound controversial, but it's actually quite biblical. Jesus, we see in these early chapters of the eyewitness accounts, is a spirit-drenched man who was utterly dependent for the power of his ministry, the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of his ministry. He was utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. His life was immersed in and sustained by the power of the Spirit. Everything Jesus did could be attributed to the power of the Spirit. Jesus here is not relying on his divinity. Philippians chapter 2, Paul makes it clear that Jesus actually emptied himself of his ability to do what uh, one writer says, to play the God card, right? He's emptied himself of his divine privilege, not his divine nature, his divine essence, but his divine privileges, and he's now living and limited to a human body. And what that meant was that Jesus, just like you and me, has to depend on the power of the Spirit, not his divinity, to usher in the reign and the rule of God and to accomplish our redemption. Even Jesus himself had to be dependent every minute of every day for his ministry. Scott McKnight, in his book, Open to the Spirit, says this, Jesus was the spirit-filled human among humans. Was he different than us? Not in his need for independence on the spirit, except that he was always wide open, and we often are not. 
We see this finally, um, not only in the life of Jesus, but also the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 says that the death, in the death of Jesus, Jesus offered up his, his body through the eternal spirit to God. And in John chapter 19, it says when Jesus had received the sour wine, he finished and he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and it says he gave up, some translations say his spirit, but it's actually he gave up the spirit. And what's happening on the cross is that Jesus is releasing the spirit to now go out and empower and equip his disciples to live in his disciples. And we see the same thing at work in the resurrection, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now just let that sink in for a second. I want you to think about that, and, and I want you to be reminded of our teaching from a few weeks ago, right when the coronavirus broke out on John chapters 14 and 16, because all of that is kind of in the background, humming like an app that hasn't been closed, in the background of Jesus' words when he's gathered together with his disciples, and they're, the disciples are huddled in fear, and they're, they're kind of behind locked doors. And when Jesus comes to them in John chapter 16, before, the death, before his death and resurrection, and then afterwards, after he's been raised from the dead in John 20, here's what he says to his disciples. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Okay, let's just stop right there. Like, mind blown. It's to your advantage that I, God himself in the flesh, go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And when Jesus had said this after his resurrection, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away and I'm going to send you another helper. That word there is paraclete, another helper, another advocate, another presence just like mine. It's going to be poured out on you and live inside of you. He says, it's for your benefit that I do this. I mean, that's hard to understand. How can it be for our benefit? What Jesus is saying here, uh, according to author J.D. Greer, I love the way he puts this. He says, Jesus is claiming that having the Holy Spirit in them would be better than having him beside them. Having the Holy Spirit in us is better than having Jesus beside us. So how in the world can it be better for us to have the Spirit in us? than for us to have Jesus in the flesh beside us. If I gave you a choice and I said, you can have Jesus walking beside you, going to work, living in your home, right? Like as you're making decisions, would you rather have Jesus in the flesh beside you or the Holy Spirit living inside of you? I think if most of us are honest, we'd probably choose Jesus in the flesh beside us. But the interesting thing in the New Testament is that when Jesus was beside his disciples, think about the three years, three and a half years that he lived with his disciples, they were fearful, they were anxious, they were cowardly, they were insular, they failed time and time again. Now, let me be clear, that's not due to any ineffectiveness or incompetency of Jesus, but it is part of the progression and kind of the iterative nature of God's kingdom. Jesus' incarnation, his life, becoming flesh, his death and his resurrection, yes, accomplished our redemption, but... The work of the Spirit after Jesus ascends back to the right hand of the Father is to apply and to internalize that reality in our lives, to empower us, 
Just like Jesus had to be empowered for his ministry of healing and reconciliation and redemption, we too now have to be baptized into the Spirit so that we can experience the same things that Jesus experienced, right? We experience a new identity. We too become sons of God. The New Testament says we are God's beloved, and we now have a new access, new intimacy with our Abba Father, but also a new authority. We are the Spirit-indwelled and Spirit-filled community who've been empowered by God's personal presence to live out the reality of the kingdom in our ministries and relationships. And I think this is so timely for the cultural moment that we find ourselves in, in the midst of a pandemic. Just like the early church, many of us find ourselves trapped behind locked doors and facing fear and anxiety and panic. And I just kind of asking myself, what is it that moved them from a place of fear behind locked doors and empowered them? We see them in the book backs going out with boldness and confidence. And I think the only feasible explanation is that they experience the reality of the Holy Spirit transforming their lives. And that's the same power that we need to experience right now. I was listening to a podcast this week, and this uh, person was talking about the pandemic and what God's doing. And one of the things he said is we need to learn to see God's presence and to listen for God's voice in this moment, to stop trying to make things happen or force or manipulate things to happen, but simply to surrender to what God is doing instead of always trying to figure out what do I need to be doing. And he said it's in that space of surrender that God begins to reveal, God begins to speak and align us to his purposes. And he says it's in these moments, like I think about as the church, when all of your platforms are stripped away, when everything that you rely on, all the authority that you rely on, whether that's knowledge or expertise or competency or proficiency, all of that stuff, he said, has now been stripped away. All of our natural abilities have been reduced to rubble. And he says what we need more than anything else is spiritual authority in this time. People will follow spiritual authority. By that, he meant the presence and the power of Jesus in our life that comes from abiding with him. It doesn't come out of our natural abilities. This is the fruit that lasts is that that comes out of abiding with Jesus and depending on Jesus and the power of the Spirit. So we can't force the Spirit. We can't push or manipulate the Holy Spirit, but we can pursue the presence of the Spirit together. One illustration you might think of here is, uh, and I'm no sailor, but just think about sailing uh, on a sailboat. You you can't make the wind happen, right? And the Holy Spirit is the breath and the wind of God. But we can lift our sails, and we can pray, and we can work, and we can beg and plead with God to bring the Holy Spirit, to allow the Holy Spirit to come and to fill us. And that is my hope for us as a community, as we step into the series together, that we would become a more Spirit-drenched, Spirit-filled community, that we would hunger and thirst for God's empowering presence to become more of an experiential reality, not just a theology, not just a doctrinal point that we believe in but don't live out. I mean, that's, if we're honest, for most of us, there's a huge gap between what we know and what we confess about the Holy Spirit and how we actually live our lives in the presence of the Spirit. And again, the goal is not to get fixated on or obsessed with the Holy Spirit and His gifts, but just like the Holy Spirit, the goal is that we would glorify Jesus, that we would grow in our relational experience of the presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus as we minister in the name of Jesus in our community. And so I just close with these questions. Are we open to the Spirit? Are we, like the Bible, saying, come, Holy Spirit? Like the early church, come, Holy Spirit, are we even open to the Spirit? Are we closed because of fear, bad experiences that we've had in the past? Are we thirsting for 
the Spirit. I love the end of Revelation. It says, let the one who is thirsty come and drink deeply of the waters of life. Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. Are we thirsty and hungry for the Spirit to come? And are we living in the fullness of the Spirit? The Bible says, walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Is that our desire as disciples of Jesus? That is the way that Jesus lived his life. That is the way that Jesus died, the way he was resurrected, and now what he is doing is he sits at the right hand of the Father praying that we would experience the same empowering presence that he did in his life in ministry. And so I want to just close. Just take a moment, set aside your things, and I just want to close with this prayer that Scott McKnight has in his book and just pray that God would make us open to the work of the Spirit, that he would make us open to the power and the presence of the Spirit as we work through this series together. So let's just say this together. I'll throw it up on the slide for you, and let's work through this together. Lord, we are open to the Holy Spirit. Come to us. Dwell in us. Speak to us so we may become more like Christ. Lord, give us the courage to be open. Lord, we are open to the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.